How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation by Andrew Meyer, an award-winning journalist and biographer. We are discussing his book, Morgenthau, Power, Privilege, and the Rise of an American Dynasty. Mr. Meyer, thank you very much for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you. So let me ask you about your book. What attracted you to the Morgenthau family? Do you have a personal connection with them, or did you have some scholarly interest in that subject? Well, I actually had been in Russia working for Time magazine for about Uh, almost a decade, for six years in Russia as the Moscow correspondent for time. And I moved back to the States and I wrote a big book. My first book was on Russia called Black Earth. And then I turned to a biography and I wrote um, a biography about an American who was um, an idealist, became a communist, ended up working for Stalin. Long story short, I found his son and I found the story that was buried in the Soviet KGB archives. So I became a biographer really with that second book. And although I left time and left Russia, I still went back to Russia almost every year for the New York Times Sunday Magazine. And at that time I started turning to New York City politics. I was living in New York, still am living in New York. And I was looking around for a second biography and I wanted to do someone who was a living subject. I'd been chasing ghosts for so many years. And I looked at a fellow named Mike Bloomberg, and I looked at a guy named Steve Jobs, both of whom colleagues were already writing about. And I cast around and I looked at the DA. He was 89 years old in the spring of um, 2009. And by all intents and purposes, he was running again. He was going to run for re-election. And he already had a slogan. I thought it was a pretty good one, 90 and 09. And to prepare for that first interview, it wasn't really a ruse. I was talking to editors, and I was thinking about doing a profile uh, of Robert Morgenthau for the Sunday Times magazine. And he wasn't really keen on another magazine profile, but he agreed to see me for 45 minutes. It was the spring of 2008, if memory serves, a long time ago. And to prepare for that, I read everything I possibly could. And I was a fellow at the New York Public Library. And I found a diary. It's not really a diary. It's called a Lebensgeschichte in German. And a Lebensgeschichte is a life story. And it was written by the DA's uh, great-grandfather, Lazarus Morgenthau, the first Morgenthau to come to New York. In fact, he came to Brooklyn a few blocks away from where I'm now sitting. Lazarus Morgenthau wrote that life history in 1842 at the ripe old age of 27. It was in German and in English. And when I met the DA for the first time, I told him that I had read that. And as I said, he wasn't really interested in a profile. He had seen hundreds of reporters come through his office 
over 35 years in office. And we sat and we talked for most of that afternoon. The line outside his door got longer and longer. There were assistants. There were a number of people waiting for him. And he kind of ignored them. And then he said to me after an hour and a half, are you hungry? And then we went for lunch and it became uh, a routine. And I realized that right from the beginning, I saw something different in the possibility. And so did he and me. It was not an authorized biography, but without the blessing, as you can imagine, of Robert Morgenthau, I could never have done this. I realized that the story of Lazarus Morgenthau, the patriarch who came here just after the Civil War, one of his sons, uh, inarguably his most successful sons, Henry Morgenthau Sr., and then Henry Morgenthau Jr., the Secretary of the Treasury under FDR, and then, of course, the DA, that this is a unique opportunity. There really isn't another family in American history, let alone New York history, that has that great reach over 150 years, not only in New York history, the making of New York, all the way to almost 50 years ahead of uh, New York City law enforcement, but really across those four generations, a window into a history of American history, but also world history. There really isn't another family that has been uh, at that level for as many years. Okay. The book is uh, quite extensive in its uh, research. So I'm just curious, when you're writing a book at that length, uh, do you ever, in the middle of it, say, you know, I wish I hadn't taken on this project because it gets to be very long and you kind of wonder if you're going to finish it? How long did you actually take from the beginning to the end to complete this book, which is quite good? It's a great question. Uh, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, David, I think it's fair to say uh, I suffer from a syndrome known as well, I don't know what the, the official name of the syndrome is, but I'm an obsessive researcher. And a number of people have said, you know, if there hadn't have been the internet, the book would have been done in half the time. That's absolutely true. If there hadn't have been 97 and counting archives, state and private archives around the world that held Morgan's uh, documents, the book would have been done much faster. And every time I saw the DA, and I, I lost track of how many interviews I did. I think it was you know, easily over 300 um, people. And many of them I interviewed several times. I knew from the beginning this was going to be a gargantuan task, the paper trail alone. So the book covers 150 years, but the big presidencies of the 20th century are front and center. Woodrow Wilson, FDR, and of course, Kennedy. Morgenthau's played central roles in each of those presidencies. So I went to go see the historians first and foremost. I went to go see John Morton Blum. I went to go see Jeff Ward and Robert Carroll. And of course, you can guess what Mr. Carroll's answer was. <laughs> Take your time. Right. Uh, and along the way, when your question, you said, was there ever a moment where you thought, why did I take this on? From the beginning, everybody said, those who had walked before me said, this is going to take some time. Oh, at least five years. Well, to be honest, it took more than a decade. And part of that, of course, was the research trail, which was extensive. And a lot of that was writing and rewriting and writing again. One of the many things I learned from Mr. Carroll was biography, ironically, is the art of subtraction. He also then, somewhere around midstream at an event, came up and sort of half whispered, have you thought about three volumes? And I said, no, I want to preserve my marriage and our kids then were young. It was more than a decade of work, and uh, I can now say as I go out and, and speak to audiences and, and hear you know, this wonderful alchemy where 
the words you put out on a page come back to you um, from readers that without a doubt, it was worth it. Okay, so let's go through the four Morgenthaus that you prominently focus on on your book. The first one is Lazarus Morgenthau. Now, he was a German Jewish businessman who was reasonably prosperous. How did he become prosperous in Germany? So Lazarus's story, each of these could have been their own book. And Lazarus actually may be the blockbuster Hollywood uh, buried, I thought, in the 19th century. And uh, I knew almost nothing of it when I first started this trek. I had read, as I said, um, his diary, which may or may not be uh, half true. His story is really rags to riches to rags. Uh, he's born in a very large Orthodox Jewish family in southern Germany. He leaves everything behind. He breaks every single barrier, every single stricture he possibly could. He was a very reform-minded, modern man. He reached out, and this is one of the themes that runs throughout the entire book across four generations. He reached out not only to his own community, but both professionally and in a kind of very social, progressive way. He reached out to Catholics and Protestants as well. He becomes, long story short, one of the largest, one of the most wealthy cigar barons in Europe. At his height, he has three factories, handmade, of course, cigars, a thousand people making cigars. Where are those cigars going? Well, believe it or not, again, this is the blockbuster story. He has a brother in San Francisco at the time of the gold rush. So the 49ers in San Francisco are buying Lazarus Morgenthau's cigars. They actually called it Morgenthau Brothers. Uh, there was an outpost in London. There was an outpost here in New York. Things were going great until a young man, Abe Lincoln, runs for president on what? Tariffs, especially anything coming from Europe, such as German cigars. Lazarus goes almost bust. He has one of the largest, if not the largest, mansion in Mannheim. He sells that. So he comes to New York. Uh, he comes to Brooklyn, as I said, with some money, but not much. He's essentially ruined. And he has a whole gaggle of children. They arrive in Brooklyn, they soon move to Manhattan, and the middle son, the ninth son, young Henry Morgenthau, rises through that out of really the ruins of his father, Lazarus. And there's a whole backstory to Lazarus and his wife, Babette. One of the challenges when I first started the book, really from the beginning of the research, was what to do with the lack of the paper trail. You know, we talked about the millions of pages of documents uh, that were in archives. Those were all almost exclusively written for and addressed to the men and trying to bring out uh, the women who were extraordinary and long suffering was one of the challenges from the very beginning. Babette, 14 children, 23 years, living with a man who, if not eccentric, suffered mental illness. And I don't want to give away too much, but um, Lazarus ends up institutionalized and his son, Henry, has to hire Pinkerton guards, the real Pinkerton, you know, private investigators to keep him at bay during um, Henry's wedding day. So there's lots of drama, lots of uh, melodrama, but it's a, it's, a, it's a tale of rags to riches, again, to rags. So um, very often successful business people don't produce successful business sons. They do from time to time, but not always. Um, so in this case, Lazarus Morgenthau had been a successful businessman at one point, and his son, Henry Morgenthau, later senior, became an extremely successful businessman in real estate in New York City. Can you describe how he did that and, 
and and what was his talent? So he had a number of talents. Um, one was an innate gift. He was very good uh, with numbers. He was very clever. He was extraordinarily diligent. Really, I think that was just his character. I'm reading a book now on moral virtue and the importance of moral virtue in leadership and actually on Wall Street. And I think that Henry Morgenthau uh, really embodies all of that. He also took root in New York City, perhaps unlike any other immigrant at that time in the 1870s, 1880s. Of course, it's the Gilded Age, but we don't really talk about, you know, children of fallen uh, Bavarian cigar barons in the Gilded Age. He's an outsider. You know, there are other members of what are known as our crowd, um, the Goldmans and the Saxes, the Seligmans and the Strausses. All those families, of course, came much earlier. They came before the Civil War. Henry is a child of a very different family. His father, as I said, is in ruins, and he's a self-made man. He goes to City College here in New York, and he's forced to drop out due to his father's, as I said, errant ways. He goes to Columbia Law School, becomes a lawyer, opens up a small firm downtown right across from City Hall. He could have just been you know, a, a mid-level or a top-level lawyer, but it's the genius, and he has a kind of eye for value, right? And he also is imbibing, and this is the part that I find most fascinating, and that, as I speak, readers really take to. He discovers great American philosophers, Ben Franklin, the 13 virtues of how to live your life. And he writes again and again and again, and I see this, you know, my eyes go blurry with how much paper he left. As a young boy, Henry not only imbibes Ben Franklin, he imbibes the Quakers on the weekends, he doesn't go to temple. He doesn't go to synagogue. He does a little bit, but he goes on a great spiritual walkabout. He goes and sees all the great, uh, at that time, Protestant ministers in Brooklyn and across Manhattan, and he writes down everything he hears. This is what really will form him as he makes his money. And well, how did he make his money? Real estate. It was uh, a vastly overlooked. There were the Astors, of course, but nobody ever sold. Why would you sell property? You acquired it. And when the Morgenthaus first came, it was the week that the last uh, old Dutch farms were sold off in Brooklyn. Much of New York, of course, and above uh, Central Park was farmland or even just fields. Henry Morgenthau comes along. He starts buying in lower Manhattan. He then sees the subway coming. Long story short, he knows exactly where the subway is going to go. It's going to go north. So he buys north. The city is growing three, four, five, ten blocks a year north. At the same time, the city is growing vertical. We have the rise of the vertical city. And he sees all of that. And he does something. He invests his own money, but he didn't have enough money. He creates what, you know, the real estate historians told me early on. Andrew, this is Terry Incognito. Good luck. Well, of course, to a biographer, that's a green light. And I spent months and months, probably years, to be honest, trying to understand well, why were all these New York City real estate deeds, why were they in the name of women? Well, they were in the name of women because it was considered a ladies' trade in a kind of uh, openly derogatory frame. And Henry decides to build syndicates. He becomes the first syndicator, and he builds most of northern Manhattan and much of the Bronx. This is exactly what he does. When, as he would say, I bought the Democratic Party for Woodrow Wilson in 1912, he becomes the first bundler for the Democratic Party. And uh, his reward for being a bundler 
is a diplomatic assignment. Is that right? Yeah, he didn't want it. It was known as the Jewish seat. I mentioned the Strausses. Oscar Strauss, of course, was the great pioneer progenitor. He was a Republican. He was sort of everything that Henry uh, Sr., by this point, he's called Uncle Henry, which is very useful in the book. You know, my kids said, uh, you know, the problem with the book is not only that, you know, you've got to cover 150 years, you've got so many Henrys. And so Roosevelt called Henry Sr. Uncle Henry, and anyone in the Democratic Party called him Uncle Henry. He was avuncular, but he was the guy with the money bags. Uh, he said he bought the Democratic Party for $20,000 uh, in 1912. It was probably uh, at least double that. He was the co-chair of the finance committee. He ran the, the campaign nationally. Uh, Wilson, of course, was running against Wall Street. Kind of ironic that you had a financier in Manhattan as the co-chair. But Henry was, if nothing else, a progressive. The old ideas of Emersonian virtue were very much in his forefront. He was also concerned about um, immigrant, labor, tenements, all the work that the great uh, Governor Al Smith did. Henry Morgenthau was right there alongside him. He really wanted to be Secretary of Treasury. And what was he given? He was given the Jewish seat, as it was called in quotes, which of course was Constantinople, modern day Istanbul. And there's a big back and forth to and fro with other uh, New York leaders, civic leaders and Jewish leaders. And Wilson says to him in the White House, President Wilson says, you know, Henry, go, go on behalf of your co-religionists. That was the term he used, meaning the Jews, the Hebrews. That's where you can do the most good. Because, of course, the Turks controlled what was then known as Palestine. And the idea was that the, the young Jewish settlement, the Yeshuv, would be in the better hands under an American Jew. Also, there was the unspoken idea that an American Jew, as one of the leading diplomats in Turkey, could speak both to Christians and Muslims. What were American interests in Turkey? Well, first and foremost, they were the missionaries. There's a whole range of American missionaries who were across the old Ottoman Empire. Okay, so he does this, accept this position, uh, and I assume he does a reasonably good job, probably doesn't bring peace to the Middle East as we know it, but does a reasonably good job. He has a son known as Henry Morgenthau Jr. Is he an aggressive businessman who says, I want to be like my father and make a, a lot of money, or does he not quite say that? I have to go back one bit because uh, any fan of Barbara Tuckman listening will not be pleased if I don't mention one thing. He doesn't bring peace to the Middle East, but even though Henry Morgenthau is known to this day as the greatest anti-Zionist, he called Zionism the greatest fallacy, he did go to the Holy Land, uh, to the issue of, and is largely responsible, is really directly responsible for delivering the first U.S. aid to those Jewish settlers. So it wasn't peace yet. Uh, but he certainly saw the need for the U American support. And that is the earliest uh, U.S. support for the Jews uh, in then in Palestine. His son, Junior, uh, was a ne'er-do-well. He grew up very much in the shadow of this overbearing father. I don't think there could have been a more overbearing father than Henry Sr., who had other children, and they were three women. And he literally said to his wife, let me have the boy. And he did. Uh, he did everything he possibly could to try to make Junior Henry Morgenthau and son, i.e. take over the real estate company. It didn't happen. In my first round early on uh, to the historians, I went to go see John Morton Blum, the great historian up at Yale. 
Professor Blum had been probably 15 years at Henry Jr.'s side, converting what were known as the Morgenthau Diaries, almost 900 volumes that are up at the Roosevelt Library, probably the largest collection of documents ever to be assembled in Washington. 12 years, it's, it's not a diary, it's, it's the Treasury Secretary's in and out box. He kept every single piece of paper that went in and went out. And he had a long-suffering assistant, Henrietta Klotz, typing up every single meeting, including what she said during meetings. So you have this incredible unparalleled stenographic record of 12 years during Roosevelt. Henry Jr. never graduated college. It was the one time his son, the DA, Robert Morgenthau, called me up and he said, you know, uh, Andy, I was always Andy uh, to the DA. Uh, my father wasn't a very good student because he knew that I had gotten his transcript at Cornell. He dropped out of Cornell twice. He never even graduated prep school. So you have one of the longest serving cabinet members in United States history who didn't have a high school degree. And Professor Blum explained it to me. He said, you know, the guy was almost certainly dyslexic. So John Morton Blum actually wrote, condensed those 900 volumes into three volumes, took him more than a decade. And he said, I would have to read drafts to him because he wasn't a reader. But what he did have, and this is why Roosevelt valued him, first and foremost, Henry Morgenthau was an incredible, brilliant, he had this genius at bureaucracy. And he had the vision and an absolutely hard-headed determination and drive to see the plan through. He was loyal. He was a proxy. He stuck his neck out for Roosevelt. But that's really was his enduring legacy for Roosevelt. He wasn't a new dealer. He couldn't stomach, literally couldn't stomach the budgets. But he was as loyal a bureaucrat in the sense that the bureaucracy was growing his leaps and bounds, as you know, in the 1930s. And that's really Morgenthau Jr., Henry Jr.'s legacy. Well, he had grown up, in effect, with uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt because they both had estates up in Dutchess County, I guess it was. And therefore, he knew Roosevelt as a young man, knew him when he contracted polio. And basically, it was a consigliere, a friend, uh, somebody who uh, Roosevelt could feel comfortable with. And so to the surprise of almost everybody on Wall Street, he was named Secretary of the Treasury who was not probably somebody that had background that you would normally expect. But as Secretary of the Treasury, uh, he was there through the entire Roosevelt administration. Is that right? Almost from the very beginning. He actually had been with Roosevelt the whole time that FDR was governor up in Albany. And many of the things that they tried out, again, these were risky. Some of these were very much seat of your pants. Agricultural reforms, rural electrification. I kept reading and seeing in notes, handwritten notes about hard roads. I didn't know what hard roads were. And if you ask anyone who lives upstate, certainly in the 1920s, hard roads were asphalt. That meant a great deal. Right. Uh, milk prices, dairy, butter, all of this minutia from upstate is what he carried with him. He was conservation commissioner under Roosevelt. The two of them had this kind of bromance. They were both farmers. They were not gentlemen farmers. They really were farmers. Roosevelt knew his trees. He knew his plants. He had a competition about fruit. And when he got to Washington, Henry really didn't want to be Secretary of Treasury. As I said, his father wanted him to be. He wanted to be Secretary of Agriculture, a job that went to Henry Wallace. And as the DA used to say in one of our first meetings, he said, I asked him about this, you know, how come your father didn't get it? And Secretary of Agriculture, he said, well, between an Iowa farmer and a Jew from New York, who do you think wins out? 
So Wooden initially was Secretary of Treasury, and he was ill. And when he died, and when it was clear that he was going to die, that's when FDR named him um, Secretary of Treasury. And at first, FDR, you, know, you read the histories, Roosevelt wanted to be his own secretary. And that's not exactly the way things turned out. So Morgenthau is best known to the general public today for reading your book as the person who tried to uh, alert Roosevelt to the problems that the Jews were having in Europe and has been criticized by some for not being more aggressive in pushing Roosevelt to do something about something like Auschwitz. But how Jewish was Morgenthau and was he not really afraid of coming across as too Jewish if he was pursuing the cause of the Jews in Europe? There's no question that one of the things that motivated the Treasury Secretary throughout the years, even as early as the early 1930s before uh, there in Washington, was Hitler and German militarism and Prussian militarism. Even in World War I, he was worried about being perceived as being uh, not Jewish, but German, right? Morgenthau, the name means morning dew, as many of your listeners will know. And his father constantly, even before World War I, is talking openly and warning about a return of this Prussian militarism. I talked about FDR and Henry Jr. having this bromance. It wasn't just a bromance. One of their main uh, threads, and one of the, the largest uh, points they agreed on from as early as 1933, was the return of what Roosevelt called Prussian militarism. As you know, Roosevelt had gone as a young boy every summer to Germany. And there were a few things that stuck in his mind right up until the night he died. Henry Morgenthau was with FDR the night before he died, and this was the conversation they had. It was about what became known as the Morgenthau Plan. And he says, you know, have you done something about the marching bands, the uniforms? Because as a young boy, that's what Roosevelt had seen in Germany. And this is what reminded him, this is what constantly is echoing throughout their conversations and their worry about Germany. There's a note that they passed to each other. Morgenthau was literally the right-hand man at cabinet. They had lunch together. He was the only member of the cabinet that lunched with Roosevelt every Monday throughout those 12 years. But at cabinet, you know, it's a big cabinet. Morgenthau is sitting right at the right side of the president. He writes him a note in the spring of 1933. One of the great ironies of history, of course, Hitler and Roosevelt come to power at the same time. And Henry Jr. writes to FDR, do you think there will be war in Europe? And FDR writes back, almost certainly. And do you think that we will have to go in to defend, meaning, of course, France and England? And Roosevelt writes back, almost certainly so. That's exactly what happened. And that role that Henry Morgenthau, with all of his sort of hand-wringing, Roosevelt called him Henry de Morgue. He was always glowering. He was a terrible public speaker. He had this undiagnosed dyslexia. That really was his great service, not only to FDR, but what many saw the, the savior of Western civilization, was rearming Europe long before Pearl Harbor. And that's something that fundamentally he shared with FDR, right. often in contravention, of course, of U.S. law. But uh, Morgenthau was the only person who was Jewish in the Roosevelt cabinet. And so I assume he was conscious of that. So was he really afraid of being the so-called house Jew? And did he try very hard not to argue for Jewish causes? Or did he was he not worried about that? He worried about everything. 
<laughs> David E. Henry weren't that worried about everything. And part of it was just his genetics. Uh, his daughter, the late Dr. Joan Morgenthau, she described to me, because she was at home, the boys, the future DA, was 54 months in active service in the U.S. Navy as a very young man, first in the Mediterranean and then in the Pacific. His older brother, Henry Morgenthau III, who died at 101, was in Europe, in Germany with General Patton. But Joan was at home in Washington, and she described to me in vivid, excruciating detail the migraines that her father had. And it really begins just in this period. He was always a great worrier. He was a great prevaricator. He was actually the opposite of what Roosevelt, I mean, they were Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Roosevelt could make a decision in a second and never revisit it. He didn't know the meaning of regret. Henry lived and breathed and stayed awake all night, just roiling in regret. He called this period those terrible 18 months. And that is 18 months, exactly what you're talking about, is when they learned, those in Washington, certainly at, at the top of the Treasury, the secret. It was an open secret by then. It, there were articles buried deep, yes, but they were in the New York Times and elsewhere about the Von Zay conference, about what became known as the final solution. There are articles even that mention concentration camps, that even mention gas. The mass murder of the Jews was already underway. But as you said, Henry didn't want, the last thing he wanted to be seen, although he was the only Jewish member of the cabinet, he didn't want to be seen as a special pleader. The last thing he wanted to do was to stick his neck out for anyone, let alone the Jews, with his best friend, FDR. Henry was very much in love with his wife, Eleanor. It's an extraordinary and a unique relationship, the two couples. FDR and Mrs. Roosevelt had one of the most interesting, certainly the most unique, and probably the most effective political marriage of the 20th century. A lot of that is due to the thanks of Eleanor Morgenthau, spelled differently, but FDR called them the two Eleanors, and Henry Jr. They were the only couple that they socialized with. They were the only couple that they talked policy with. They were the only couple that they went on not only holiday, but almost every birthday, every New Year's Eve, this really close, intimate bond. And that's when Henry learns about the Holocaust, what comes to be known as the Holocaust. He goes to Eleanor Roosevelt, and Eleanor Roosevelt said to him, as she said to him often, Franklin listens to you, Henry, she says, to paraphrase, you are his conscience, which of course is untrue. FDR's conscience was Mrs. Roosevelt, and he listened to her first and foremost. Henry overcomes all of that when he learns what is impossible by that point to avoid. It's a long story which covers many chapters, but it's the fulcrum of the book. They were ideologues, New Deal idealists, not one of them Jewish in the Treasury who stay up late for weeks and weeks and months to convince their boss to act. And it's at their behest that he goes to the White House and says to FDR, this is the idea. And that's the creation of the War Refugee Board, which was far too little and far too late. They hadn't bombed, of course, the railroads to the concentration camps. But that moment, Henry later looks back and says, the founding of the War Refugee Board, which saved as many as 200,000 of the last Jews of Europe, the founding of the War Refugee Board and the founding of what comes to be known as the World Bank at Bretton Woods, he says, those are my two crowning achievements. And that's really when I was at the heart of power. So we have just a few minutes left. So let's cover the fourth Morgenthau, 
that you're really focused on your book, and that's Robert Morgenthau, who, for those people that don't know, served uniquely as both U.S. attorney in New York and then later as the uh, district attorney in New York, the elected position that deals with state and local crime. So how did Robert Morgenthau get to be appointed U.S. attorney by President Kennedy? So each of these generations, the last three, helped elect the presidents they served. Henry Sr., Woodrow Wilson, of course, Jr., FDR, and Robert Morgenthau helped elect JFK. They had actually known each other. They weren't close friends, but they had sailed together off the coast of Cape Cod. Uh, They certainly knew each other. They had also been in the south of France, possibly, quite likely, deliberately. Their fathers were intense rivals. I mean, Henry Jr., who became the Secretary of Treasury, got the job that Joe Kennedy, Joe Sr., wanted and never got. When JFK is elected, Robert Morgenthau is in private practice, but runs what was called the Bronx for Kennedy. It sounds like it's a local district. Actually, the Bronx was integral. And the whole reform movement taking on old machine politics in New York State was not only a radical revolution run by Bobby Kennedy, then the campaign manager, it was a model for the Kennedy campaign across the whole country. And one of the things that I learned, and I hope comes through in the book, is that that whole mode and model of of campaigning, they knew it would have to be different. We'd never had a Catholic president. And as Robert Morgenthau explained to me, it wasn't just sailing off the coast of Cape Cod that attracted him to Jack Kennedy, as he called him. It was the idea of a Catholic presidency. This was a family, you know, that had grown up, as I said, not only worshiping, but knowing Governor Al Smith. And that was a large part. As a Jewish New Yorker, uh, he felt that the time had come. And of course, like his father, like his grandfather, there was a gift in return. And that gift, as you said, was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District. Uh, Most Americans today, (laughs) when I began this quest, I don't know how many people knew what the Southern District was, uh, but because of our last presidency, I think a lot of Americans have learned a lot about the Southern District of New York. Bob Morgenthau is still the longest serving U.S. attorney in New York. He served for how long? He served for almost a decade until, of course, he was fired. And so Morgenthau was on the enemies list was no uh, fan of Nixon. He had a number of investigations cooking, and uh, President Nixon had had enough. And so there was a standoff for several weeks, uh, and Morgenthau then goes back into private practice. Until 1974, his first wife is very ill um, with cancer and dies, and he's kind of lost. And for anyone who ever met Bob Morgenthau, it's very difficult to imagine Bob Morgenthau lost but he was paralyzed. He was really frozen. He was a kind of guy, optimism doesn't begin to describe it. He had an iron will, an iron will and an iron drive. And if he wanted to get something done, it got done. Uh, You did not say no uh, to Bob Morgenthau. And when it was proposed to him to run for DA, he hadn't really thought of it. He wanted to be governor. He actually thought that um, he could be governor. And of course, he failed twice, both times against Nelson Rockefeller. He liked to forget the second run uh, for governor. But he was put up for mayor again and again, a federal judgeship. He was going to be the head of a, of a major bank on Wall Street. All of that he turned aside to run for DA. And of course, you know, the rest uh, is known. 35 years, the longest serving DA in New York history. When I met him, he was going to run again. And on the sort of victory lap tour, which went on for more than a year, benefits and galas and his 
early 100th birthday party. Again and again, people said he wasn't DA for 35 years. He was DA for life and maybe after. And as you mentioned, Cy Vance, unfortunately, Cyrus Vance, a man whom I, I greatly respect, he learned that that, in fact, uh, was not entirely a joke. Uh, Robert Morgenthau helped pick his successor and then certainly lived long enough to haunt him. So it's a really fascinating story of four generations of the Morgenthau family. I uh, enjoyed reading your book. And I highly recommend it to people who want to know about this important family in American history. So uh, let me just conclude by asking you, what are you going to do next? What's your next book? Well, I hope to come back uh, and, and be on your show uh, in a couple of years. I'm, I'm three years in because of the pandemic. We had not only is the Morgenthau book an epic, I was rewriting and rewriting it, taking advantage of the delays uh, during the pandemic. And Another thing I learned from another biographer was you really never finish. You just stop. And that is what I did when I discerned uh, what the next book would be. And the next book is uh, a little more recent history. Each time I try to take on an entirely new topic, and this one's going to be on Vietnam, uh, but still a biography. Okay. Well, thank you. I look forward to reading that when it's out. Mr. Meyer, it was great speaking with you. I want to thank you for a great conversation and congratulations on your book on the Morgenthaus. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.